Hello, and welcome to Bright Lights Big Data, a podcast about people, places, and data. I'm your data host, Tammy Armstrong. And I'm your planning host, Mike Armstrong. And we have a new format today. <laughs> um, so we've been doing interviews, which has been fantastic. We've been walking through sort of the underlying process for both of our jobs and how they are different, how they're the same. And we had been talking about, like, all right, what do we do after we're done with the problem-solving yeah. section? How can we do something different? And we've been really into the good place. Yeah. Which I, I shouldn't be a surprise. Everyone should be into the good yes, place. Yes, it's very good. Um, but we are thinking about, for some of these off episodes where we don't have an interview, we could look at how planning cities and analytics sort of play out in these pop culture representations, such as in TV shows or movies. So we got really excited about that. The good place seems like a good place to start. <laughs> oh, man. We are just oh, yeah. Right out of the gates. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, so you can tell this is going to be a hot new segment. It's going to be a great episode. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think pop culture can provide good examples to talk through, right? That are kind of a different sort of shared experience. I mean, a lot of times in pop culture, especially for this podcast, one of the big questions we asked are, what are misconceptions? Yeah, yeah. Or, how do people who aren't in your field view your field? Mm -hmm. And we see that for both of our fields, like big data. That's like a mm -hmm. almost meaningless term at this point, but it gets thrown around in shows or in movies or honestly on the news at this point. <laughs> and for planning as well, you know, any TV show is set in a location. Like, how do they mm -hmm. define that sense of place? How do they build up that environment? And that's always been really interesting to me, and we thought it would be a new lens to talk about for our podcast. Yeah, some of the stuff I'm going to talk about is really, like, in your face an example. Like, it's very much a mathematical formula that we're going to talk about that is present in the show. And other shows, like, we, I think we've made fun of House of Cards before, and, and, you know, they bring in this data scientist to help them win an election and all this stuff. You know, those are really obvious, overt examples of analytics in the show. But, you know, sometimes it might be a little more subtle. And, and it'll be exciting to call those things out. And kind of like you said, you know, that every show takes place in a setting and in some kind of location that would have kind of planning aspects to it. So right. Not every analyst dances to EDM. With a shirt off. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's a, it's a good percentage uh, of us that do it, but, you know... Most of us work in offices, so it's kind of, yeah, you got to keep it on the down low. And that's what we're here for, is to clarify <laughs> some of that nuance. Um, but an important thing to say off the bat here. So we are talking about The Good Place. There may be spoilers there for... There spoilers. There are spoilers for season one. Yes, season one spoilers. So if you haven't seen season one yet... And I, you want to. <laughs> I drastically urge you to hold off on this episode, go watch season one, and then come back. But if you're not all the way caught up through season three yet, that's okay. We're yeah. only going to touch on season one. Yep. So the, the main thing I want to talk about is really the way that you get into the good place versus the bad place. And this is something they talk about like right in episode two or something like that, episode one or two. They are welcoming the new residents to the neighborhood in the good place and walking them through this little video of, you know, how they got there. You're all fantastic people and everything you did, every sandwich you ate or whatever was worth some amount of points. So good things that you did were worth positive points, bad things you did were worth negative points, and all of that was summed up, and at the end of your life, if you were 
you know, ranked highly enough or you scored highly enough, you made the cut and you were in the good place. Otherwise you went to the bad place. Probably somebody has gone back and paused and read all of the different things that they flash up on the screen, but there's like, you know, giving somebody a hug or helping an old lady cross the street and stuff like that. Right. Negative points for having a personalized license plate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so all these different things you can do in your life. And I think this is actually a really good analogy and example for the linear regression model. So you would have each action be a variable in this model, and then there would be a coefficient assigned to each variable. So that coefficient is the number of points that that action is worth. And theoretically, a lot of these things you could do multiple times throughout your life. You could eat many sandwiches. You could go you on. Could. <laughs> I, I hope that those are positive. I have eaten many sandwiches in my life. Every time you do it, it's going to be worth maybe that same number of points and it keeps adding up. And this is very much how regression models work. So we take a series of data, we run it through an algorithm, and it comes back with these coefficients. And then as we apply the model against new observations, we plug the values in, multiply them by their coefficients, add it all up, and then you get a, a value at the end. And that value will mean something to you based on the context of that model. In this case, it says whether or not you get to go to the good place or the bad place. One of the things that's interesting about this, and I think that comes up too in a lot of real models, is the complete lack of transparency into the model during life. So in the good place, you know, you find out once it's way too late what it took to get into the good place. You know, you theoretically had no idea during life that there was a good place or a bad place for sure, as they've they've defined it and what that really means. That not, not all of us are Doug Forsett. Exactly, right? The guy who got like 94% right or something. So you're going through life making these decisions and doing these things that are each worth some amount of points, not knowing what they're worth. And Chidi might say that that was necessary so as not to corrupt a person's motivations for getting into the good place. You know, I'm only going to do these things because they're worth so many points and and that might actually eliminate the points that they were worth like if you did it for corrupt reasons then maybe it's not worth any points at all you know when it comes to real world models i think that's often the case that we don't have insight into why when we're browsing a website we're offered a special deal on a vacation package versus the person next to us looking at the same thing, not getting that offer. There's some kind of algorithm going on on the back end based on our previous browsing history and purchases and all that that's going into the website making that offer. You know, the person next to us doesn't know what they need to do to get that same offer. An example of this that many people may not really realize is actually credit scores. So the FICO credit score was developed by the Fair Isaacs Corporation, which is where the name FICO really comes from. They produced their first score in the late 80s, or their first FICO score. I think they were working on scores previous to that. And they've never been 100% transparent in how it works. You know, they have this algorithm that they basically sell to the major credit agencies, and those credit bureaus, you know, take the data that they have about you, plug it into FICO's model, and then get a score, which is why you get, you know, three different scores from three different agencies. It's the algorithm there. Originally, I think they were pretty secretive about how the model worked in general. And back to that idea of 
gaming, you know, that was kind of necessary, right? You kind of almost get into this arms race of if people knew how their credit score was calculated 100%, then they might change their behavior in order to maximize their score. And you see people do that now, right? Like, mm -hmm. I'm going to make sure I don't use too much of my available credit at any given time because I know that that impacts my credit score. And so over time, FICO did release a little bit more information, but they could change it at any time. And these behaviors are not 100% predictive. You could minimize the amount of credit that you use and still not really be a great risk. <laughs> not to share too much personal <laughs> information, but when we got married, mm -hmm. we moved out to Oregon and we were trying to open new lines of credit. Our first credit card together. Right. And even though you were gainfully employed mm -hmm. and I was not, and even though from our personal knowledge, uh, you are much more responsible financially <laughs> than I am. I was approved for a credit card and you were not. Yeah. And this was because I had, to a certain extent, gamed the system. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those of, I only made those actions specifically to improve my credit score. Right. And it ended up working in my favor. Mm -hmm. None of that goes to say that, like, I was the better investment for the credit card company. Mm -hmm. In fact, it didn't matter since we were married and how we do our finances, but... Mm -hmm. It's one of those of, you know, we don't get any sort of input to that algorithm, and if it's not 100% accurate, then to a degree, you, you need to game the system. Mm -hmm. It really comes down to, and we've talked about this before in our problem-solving series on KPIs and setting up goals for a project, people tend to behave well on the things that they're measured on. You know, we see this in employee ratings. You know, I know that my manager cares if I clock in on time. So I'm going to make sure come hell or high water, I'm there on time. Even um, though after I show up, I may just go drink some coffee and right, talk to my neighbors. Right. I may not be super productive if my manager is not paying attention to what I do in those first 10, 15 minutes. But if, if all they're looking at is the timesheets, then that's what I'm going to go for. People pay attention to what's measured. And if you can set up your metrics in a way that you know, basically completely takes care of everything you care about, then gaming the system is good. You're incentivizing the behavior that you want, and there's no downsides. But generally, human behavior is way too complex. Our businesses are too complex. We can't account for all of the unintended consequences and, and negative consequences of those incentives. And so that's where I think, again, the, the credit score really comes in this, and why they don't 100% release their methodology is because there's just too many potential unintended consequences. You know, I think it's interesting. I, they talk about the good place and, you know, the, the judges and whoever is keeping track of all the scores of your life. It's a totally infallible and completely perfect method, right? So presumably they can kind of look into your intentions and, and you might not be able to game the system. But there's also maybe an an argument that gaming the system wouldn't be such a bad thing, right? Like, if you started, you know, going volunteering every weekend just so you could score some moral points, but you did a good job and you helped people, like, would that be the worst thing? <laughs> you know? It comes up in one of the early episodes of The Good Place that as Eleanor finds out about this system, she knows that she does not belong in The Good Place, that mm -hmm. she was there through a mistake. But she, according to the algorithm, belongs in the bad place. Mm -hmm. 
And she looks at this, and largely because of that lack of transparency, yeah, yeah, she does not buy into the infallibility of the algorithm.、Mm-hmm. You know, she has a lot of problem with it because it all happened without her knowledge, and、mm-hmm. suddenly she is punished for it.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know, <laughs> I had not. Spent earlier years of my life making sure that I had a credit history. I mean, that was the problem. I had never had a credit card in my name before we got married, and so I basically—it's not like I even had a low credit score. I think I had no credit score. It was just a null value, you know.、Right. And、uh, I just hadn't paid attention to it, and I wasn't very aware of it,、um, despite otherwise being very responsible with my money and all of those good things. And I kind of felt like Eleanor in that moment, right? Of like, ah. Come on, like you know, sure. I haven't had all of these credit cards and shown a track record、uh, from a credit perspective that I've been good with these things, but I haven't been horrible either. You know, I haven't defaulted on anything. I haven't been taking out loans left and right. You know, Eleanor saying I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> right, and it's one of those. I mean, no algorithm is ever infallible,、mm-hmm. and so for credit score, you are being punished for not taking these actions.、Mm-hmm. I'm being rewarded for somebody else taking these actions on my behalf, even though I'm a greater credit risk, or I was a greater credit <laughs> risk than you were at that time,、mm-hmm. because I was much more lackadaisical. We've since converged to, to about the same financial yeah,、uh, we've, behaviors, but <laughs>、uh, yeah, we've met in the middle, which is great.、Um, but at that time, I mean,、mm-hmm. I would I would have been much more likely to miss payments mm-hmm. or. Mm-hmm. You know, forget about something than you were, but I was the one who they were willing to take a chance on. Yeah. Just because I had some track record that wasn't actually my choice, it was just、mm-hmm. my parents did open a credit card in my name when I was younger.、Mm-hmm. And and I think this comes up in a lot of different examples as well. There's a book. It's it's kind of polarizing. Called. Weapons of Math Destruction by Kath O'Neill, and in it she goes through a lot of different case studies of algorithms gone wrong. You know, algorithms that have hurt people and hurt their lives. She kind of lays out a methodology of avoiding those pitfalls and trying to create ethical models and use analytics ethically. And one of the big things she talks about in that is transparency. Whether it's job performance algorithms, algorithms used to skim. Through resumes or job applications, just all of these different things that can really impact someone's lives. You know, the decision makers are using algorithms to ostensibly be more accurate, be more efficient. But when the algorithm is a black box and someone is receiving a decision at the end of it, but they don't know why, they're just told. You don't get the job, or you're getting fired. You don't get to argue with the model, oftentimes because the decision makers don't even really know how it works themselves.、Right. You can't say, "Hey, actually, it turns out that you know you had this data point about me wrong, and that was really important for the model," or you don't know this other extenuating circumstance that would make a Reasonable person change their mind about me. I know that lack of transparency, I think, is a big problem in analytics in general, and something that we have to work on. And it's definitely one of those of you can have any sort of model that is about people. I would argue it has a greater responsibility for transparency.、Mm-hmm. So, like, if you write a model of like, here is the best way to run this entirely automated factory, great. But if it's determining whether a person is going to get fired or not,、mm-hmm. I would argue that like you have some sort of responsibility to 
define those expectations with the employee of employers could say same like the credit score of like oh we don't want our employees gaming the system Mm -hmm. but at the same time like if you're not telling them what the kpi is Mm -hmm. what really matters to the company and not giving them the chance Mm to focus their energies on Mm -hmm. what matters most then you're at a certain point you're sort of setting them up for failure and giving yourself an excuse to Mm -hmm. let people go and honestly you know i mean i said it was a problem but it's it's a problem in application it's not a problem in the the algorithms themselves it's a problem with people using them and basically choosing to just say, well, well, we just ran it through the model and whatever the model tells us to do, we're going to do. Right. It is 100% possible to create algorithms that you know how they work. It's, it's possible to understand how these things work. It's possible to understand why the decision was made to back up and say, well, you got into the good place because you ate this many sandwiches and you went on this many volunteer trips and you did all these things. And if it turned out that the model weren't completely infallible, you could say, actually, it turns out I I didn't do that one bad thing. You know, I, you got me mixed up with somebody else and provide that kind of transparency. And if you're using a technique that isn't as transparent, you know, there are some models that are just so computer driven that it's very difficult for humans to interpret them. They just kind of spit out decisions or predictions. You know, that's a choice that you're making as a decision maker to go with that and lose transparency. When you do have transparency, I think Tahani, a couple episodes into the first season, is a really great example of this. She gets access to the neighborhood manual and sees the rankings of all of the people in the good place and finds out she is like second to last. Of the people who made the cut, she's really, really down there and now she wants to know why you know so even when the decision works in your favor which of course it didn't she was actually in the bad place and that was part of her punishment or her her torture was to know that she just barely made it there and you know there can still be those questions of why did I get the score that I did and it can still really bug people so I think that good place in in the first season just had some really interesting examples of how statistical models can work and how they can be used and how it can impact people in their lives and their their feelings yeah so I wanted to talk about the good place itself okay So we don't get to see everywhere. Yeah, it's Uh, huge, right? We are told by Michael, who is sort of our... Architect. Our architect, our source of authority Mm -hmm. in this world, that this is one neighborhood out of many. Mm -hmm. And they have chosen this neighborhood idea as the good place. Mm -hmm. So this is a neighborhood of 322 people Mm -hmm. that is specifically tailored to these people. So you actually looked up, like, why the right. number 322? Yeah, we thought, like, oh, there has to be some kind of meaning to this, right? And um, there are different theories out there, like, oh, it's an angelic number and all these things. Uh, and it turns out in an interview with one of the writers, they're like, it just sounds funnier than, like, a round number like 300. So <laughs> apparently no real meaning, but yeah, you also had some theories on that, right? Yeah, it threw me off at first. I mean, it made me think of Dunbar's number, which I... I first heard about from Malcolm Gladwell in one of his mm-hmm. books, The Tipping Point, um, but it's been around for a little while. But this guy had this idea that there is a limit to the number of people who can exist as a community mm-hmm. before social cohesion starts to break down and you start to have to introduce a lot more laws and regulations mm-hmm. to create a stable community just because it's grown too large. Like. 
it's too big to know everybody and have these different social connections that sort of holds the whole structure together. And his number was 150. Oh, okay. But sort of the example that Malcolm Gladwell talks about is the company Gore-Tex. Through trial and error, they ended up on this number of 150. And whenever an office got bigger than 150, they would build a new building Mm -hmm. and start a new office. Mm -hmm. Even if it was just across the parking lot from the previous office, just... Kind of needed that unit. Yeah. And, yeah. But for whatever reason, Michael chooses 322. Mm-hmm. And as we're sort of introduced to this neighborhood, we see at first sort of community gathering spaces or third places mm. is the nerdy term for it. <laughs> but if you think about your first place is home, your second place is work, third places are these public gathering spaces and it's public in sort of a general sense the funny example that always comes up that our friend ethan brought up recently is the coffee shop in the show friends (laughs) right it's a place where they gather central perk (laughs) yeah even though it's not anybody's home it is Mm -hmm. a gathering place yeah so in the good place they have that sort of amphitheater Mm -hmm. where michael gives the welcoming talk and then people gather and it's used Mm -hmm. later in the show the frozen yogurt place (laughs) yeah so around this amphitheater is sort of the core of the neighborhood which is this very walkable there aren't any cars that's that's an interesting point no cars in the good i mean surprise surprise i feel like every (laughs) single iteration of a utopia or heaven does not have cars in it Mm -hmm. and that's because aside from a certain joy of driving people don't like interacting with cars nobody Mm -hmm. likes congestion or traffic it's stressful there's road rage all that sort of things nobody wants to see cars when they're walking like Mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable it makes sense to me Um, (laughs) something you feel a little bit passionate about maybe yeah but you know it's hyper local i mean there's no chains Mm -hmm. you would assume that every business is locally owned or run because you know they're not going to ship in workers there's the good plates which is founded by one of the the neighborhood residents you know the super intense uh chef it actually has this very dense core chidi lives in an apartment over he does over a shop downtown Mm -hmm. like there is this dense core and then outside of it are kind of all of the residences that the individuals (laughs) desire right um, so there are mansions and there's little cottages and there's I don't, I don't know. know how many of the other houses we don't get to see, see too many yeah. but like it's all like custom to that individual or that soulmated couple yeah it's also escapable it has a lot of access to nature yeah um, when Michael is trying to find hobbies for Chidi mm-hmm. they go over this ridge and like he tries to introduce him to cartography and there's mm-hmm. all this open space. Eleanor um, makes him go row with some French poetry and wine. Yeah, go out on yeah. the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though there is like a very dense urban mm-hmm. section, you're able to get out of it relatively easily. Mm-hmm. And this is all really interesting to me as a planner. It made me think of the neighborhood unit. Mm-hmm. So that's a term from the 1920s from Clarence Perry. Like It's the 1920s, so like, I don't know exactly, but he's the one most often attributed to starting this talk, although Lewis Mumford, Ebenezer Howard, a few other people started talking about it afterwards. Some great names. It was a good era for names. <laughs> they were trying to systematize development based on what had worked in the past. If you picture older European or Central American, a lot of these cities are developed around these little units. There is typically mm. a church and a plaza or courtyard in front of it, and mm-hmm. then residential 
around that. Mm -hmm. Typically up to a half mile mm -hmm. outside of it, like a walking distance. And this is kind of that village or town, and maybe it later merged with a larger city or mm -hmm. something like that, but this is how we've done it for a long time. But this idea of the neighborhood unit came up in the late 20s, 1929. So if you think about that time, mm -hmm. automobiles started entering our cities. Mm -hmm. The larger cities that we had were getting very, very dense. There were a lot of cries of overpopulation. And this is where a lot of zoning codes were first developed. Of There were so many people packed in these buildings that didn't have ventilation. It was kind of a public health focus for some of it, but Clarence Perry saw car-oriented designs start to crop up. Wider and wider roads, faster moving traffic that people couldn't get across. Crosswalks didn't really exist. Traffic signals didn't really exist. So it became very difficult and isolating have cities like this. So he sort of responded to this with an idea of the neighborhood unit, which is 5,000 to 9,000 people in sort of that half mile to one mile radius centered around a school. Hmm. And that school is also your community center, playground. After school's out, you can use it to do community theater mm -hmm. afterwards or PTA meetings or a lot of different things. This is sort of the center of your neighborhood. And then the arterial, the larger, sort of longer distance streets are on the exterior. They're on the perimeter of this neighborhood unit. Local shopping is on the perimeter. And then at least 10% of this neighborhood unit is dedicated to parks or open space. Like very much about integrating these different things. And when you sort of read through that, it's a lot of positives. Mm -hmm. And it comes from sort of this era of urban planning, which was very much people are rational. <laughs> we can design cities in a rational way, in mm -hmm. an enlightened way, and it will work. We know that from the Spanish courtyards and all of that, like, they have worked for so long, but now we need to do it on purpose because of the distorting gravity of the automobile. Mm -hmm. And so they tried to set up the system. This is how we will build new neighborhoods, or this is how we will build cities for in the future. And, you know, a lot of this kind of matches up with the Good Places neighborhood. It has that center, which I think is the amphitheater. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a school because there's no growing up right. in this, in this uh, neighborhood, but they have this community gathering space as the center of their community, dense and walkable, and then residents around it, and then they're the only real sort of transportation is the train and that's kind of on the yeah. outskirts of the neighborhood mm -hmm. and that'll connect you to other places so it was interesting to me like how many sort of overlaps there were mm -hmm. and so because this is an idea from the 1920s there's been plenty of time to critique it right <laughs> right so there are a lot of drawbacks to this the number one thing is that the people who build communities whether it's planners or city officials or if it's realtors or suburban developers that sort of latched onto the system they used it i would say generally uh, explicitly intentionally maybe it was unintentional but they created very exclusive places mm. Right? So if you think about this neighborhood unit that has these large roads around it, it's kind of this sort of historical starting point for gated communities. Yeah. 
right? So in this neighborhood unit, we're going to emphasize a certain economic class or, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to have restricted covenants about the types of races or ethnicities that can purchase homes in this neighborhood. So this was used to sort of buffer out undesirables. So if you think about the good place... Right, it's very exclusive. <laughs> it is incredibly exclusive mm-hmm. and they are pushing out everybody else into the bad place, mm-hmm. right? Like there is a lot of parallels there. Yeah. So this led to a great deal of segregation, a great deal of isolation from other neighborhoods. I mean, in the good place, we don't see other neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. There's no interacting at the periphery of these neighborhoods. It is very much, this is our one thing, and we don't see anything outside of the neighborhood. We also see some of the smaller drawbacks of the good places neighborhood of it doesn't function very well or blend very well because they try to tailor to everyone's individual desires. Right. <laughs> so you have Tahani's mansion right next to Eleanor's little cottage. Right. <laughs> like there's a lot of sort of disconnect yeah. there, but it's just really interesting to me. And so mm-hmm. towards the end of season one, when we find out that this is actually the bad place, mm-hmm. a lot of those drawbacks are kind of... They start to make sense. Yeah, and they're kind of heightened in your mm-hmm. mind of a lot of this is things that we would think are things that we would think of as desirable. And it's funny to me that, like, when they talk about all of the frozen yogurt, it's like, they just keep popping up. I don't know why. So, again, when we think about this as a bad place, like, we have an architect, a very Mm -hmm. rational, enlightened architect who is designing this on purpose, but for negative Mm -hmm. ends. And again, this comes back to your discussion of the model. It's very black box. Mm -hmm. The people moving in here the people joining this yeah. afterlife have no decision making over yeah. how this is developed and it they're just put into these houses and, and whether it's the good place or the bad place it is deliberately exclusive it is mm-hmm. segregating out a great deal of people mm-hmm. so you end up with this very synthetic and exclusive community that is built at the expense of others and so a lot of these smaller pieces the dumb things that i always think about in tv shows are not thought of, which some communities run into this problem too of we want to design for a certain economic class who lives here Mm -hmm. and so we want to have our froyo. (laughs) Who actually works there? And -hmm. where do they live? Mm -hmm. Can they get to your community? Mm -hmm. Like, we don't want to build affordable housing in our community because that's not our community character, but we're still going to employ people. Right. Where do they come from? Well, the good place gets around that because it's just Janet. <laughs> Janet just works Janet. everywhere. <laughs> um, but that whole thing is so interesting yeah. to me. Of Even when I thought of it as the good place, you can see a lot of the downsides that come from mm-hmm. a single person master planning this whole thing without mm-hmm. any sort of input. Even if he had good intentions, there's a lot of negative outcomes that come from something that has worked for the longest time because it was organic. It mm-hmm. just sort of chaotically happened Mm -hmm. we kept getting these neighborhoods not from top down this is how we're gonna do it last name drop i promise but that's sort of jane jacob's idea that (laughs) neighborhoods work best when it's an organic Mm -hmm. evolution rather than a top down we are gonna build this sterile environment they rarely actually have that sense of community yeah yeah i'm gonna get the university wrong so i won't try to name it but there's a university um i want to say in new york that instead of paving sidewalks when they were building a new part of the campus they left everything as i don't know sod or dirt and they let students just use it for like a year and students don't care they'll you can have a sidewalk somewhere and if it doesn't 
take the most efficient path from point A to point B, they will just cut across the grass, right? So they just said, how about no sidewalks? And then they built the sidewalks where the grass was worn down after some period of time. Right. So they let the students decide basically what the paths they most needed were. Right. And that's, that's brilliant. I love it when I hear those sorts of stories. And we so rarely get to do that because we think of government and planners and cities as we were trying to create this illusion of control and structure and order when we're making our best guesses, but like we don't know how people function. Mm -hmm. So Michael gets the benefit of being sort of nearly omnipotent, mm -hmm. right? Like the people are going to live in this neighborhood for the rest of time, mm -hmm. but he can sort of snap his fingers and change the environment, mm -hmm. whereas we can't. Right. So like, you know, city of Chicago does this thing. It's a ton of money and nearly impossible to change the underlying structure of an already built out neighborhood mm -hmm. because you'd have to tear down homes and tear down businesses and redo streets and spend all this money. Yeah. I don't know. These are the things that always stand yeah. out to me in shows and hopefully this is at all interesting to anybody <laughs> else. Um, but this is sort of planners in pop culture. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe rewatch season one and see if you notice anything new. <laughs> yeah, and so we're not entirely caught up on season three, but from, what I've, from what I've heard, uh, we may come back and do another episode about mm. season three hmm. in the future. I mean, we clearly enjoy talking about this. We're hoping that this is an accessible avenue for talking about planning and analytics. So let us know if you enjoy this. Um, we've yeah. talked about potential future shows. I mean, mm -hmm. at least the theory or some underlying assumptions about our two fields show up in a lot of different mm -hmm. shows that we would be happy to talk about. Yeah. Um, so if you have suggestions or particular questions that The Good Place or another show uh, brings up for you, let us know. You can always reach us at brightlightsbigdata at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at blbdpod or on our Facebook page. And, you know, we, we put calls out for ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and those are always great. But, you know, even better, just tell a friend. Um, if yeah. you like listening to our show, you know, we don't really advertise. I think we've gotten some free credits on Facebook that we've played with uh, and things like that. But word of mouth is the best thing for us. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. And uh, the season of giving is almost upon us. So we are going to see what we can do about scheduling some interviews with representatives of local nonprofits and maybe have some ideas of organizations that you may not really know what they do and maybe want to support as that time comes. So look forward to that. So that'll do it for us today. This has been Bright Lights, Big Data. Everything uh. is fine. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>